Welcome to the new podcast of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. I'm Isabel Moreno Hay, Clinic Director of the Orofacial Pain Center at the University of Kentucky. The American Academy of Orofacial Pain, also known as AAOP, is an organization of dentists and health providers dedicated to alleviating pain and suffering of patients through the promotion of excellence in education, research, and patient care in the field of orofacial pain and any other associated disorders. If you would like to learn more about the AAOP and its mission, please visit our website at www.aaop.org. Before we get started, I would like to thank Dr. Steven Scrivani, Chair of the Continuing Education Oversight Committee of the AOP, for his support and guidance on this new project of educational podcast in which we will be talking to renowned experts in the field of orofacial pain and temporomandibular disorders. For example, in today's podcast, we're going to be discussing the role that dentists can play in the management of patients suffering from TMD or temporomandibular disorders with Professor Ockeson. So, Thank you so much for listening and welcome to the American Academy of Orofacial Pain podcast. For those who might not know Professor Aukeson, he's a world-renowned expert in the field of orofacial pain and temporomandibular disorders. He has dedicated his entire career to the study of orofacial pain since he started his clinic for the management of these patients more than 40 years ago at the University of Kentucky, becoming one of the pioneers in this field. Among many other publications, he has authored two of the most relevant textbooks that have been translated to 11 different languages and are presently used in most dental schools around the world. He's currently the program director of the Eurofacial Pain Program at the University of Kentucky that he founded in 1988 and was one of the first CODA-approved programs in 2011. He's not only an extraordinary clinician, an outstanding speaker, but also a great mentor. So for me, it's a great pleasure to be interviewing today Professor Aukeson, from whom I have learned everything that I know about TMD and orofacial pain. Welcome, Professor Aukeson. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Mario Hay, for the invitation. So, Professor Ockeson, I would like to begin by asking you to explain what is exactly TMD. Sometimes I've heard the term also TMJ. And how does it fit into this big picture of orofacial pain? Well, that's a great introduction to that subject because this thing called TMD, temporomandibular disorders, is a large umbrella term which has to do with musculoskeletal pains in the masculatory system. So we're talking about muscle pain, we're talking about joint pain, we're talking about connective tissue and things like that. That's all musculoskeletal pain. And, and I don't care to call patients TMJ patients because what that's basically assuming is that all the problem is joint-related. And, and unfortunately, that's not the case at all. There's a lot of patients, actually more patients with muscle pain than with joint pain. So I think the word TM disorders is a more appropriate general term for, for these patients. How does that fit into the big picture? Well, oral facial pain is the, is the big picture of all the different pain conditions that can occur within the head and neck structures, the oral, oral, or the oral facial structures, and, and even more oral facial pain, like headache, for instance. TMD is only one little section of the big gamut of oral facial pain, but it is an important section for we dentists because we dentists need to be able to understand TM disorders because we are the only healthcare providers that know how to manage that condition. And 
What we also have to appreciate, though, that all the patients we see that we might call TMD patients or even TMJ patients don't have pain coming from the structures that we deal with. That's the rest of the orofacial pain issues. So we've got to sort of separate all of orofacial pain from just TM disorders, which we need to treat as dentists. Yeah. So when a patient comes to a dental office, uh, how do we know if our patient has TMD or not? And how often it is for a dentist to encounter a patient with, with TMD disorders? That is so critical because when patients come to pain with pain, we've got to figure out, is this a TM disorder? Is it a toothache? Is it some other dental kind of pain? Because, of course, they're managed differently. Now, interesting, an interesting study done back in the North Pacific where they interviewed patients. Over a 1,000 offices were looked at. They interviewed patients and asked the question, why did you come to the dental office? Actually, every sixth patient came to the dental office because of pain. Now, the majority of those pain conditions were, in fact, toothache, which is what we see the most as dentists. However, the second most common was musculoskeletal. So it's really reasonable to think that, that every, every five or six times patients come in, some of those patients are going to have musculoskeletal pain, not dental pain. And we've got to be able to differentiate that because the management of musculoskeletal pain, or team disorders, is different than toothache, and it's different than all, some of the other orofacial pains. Mm-hmm. So how do we tell the difference? Well, if it's musculoskeletal pain of the masculatory system, then using those muscles and joints are going to increase the pain. So these are patients who should, should show up with pain in the face but limited mouth opening or, or painful clicking, popping of the joint, or, and, excuse me, and that, these, that movements of the jaw, opening, closing, chewing, should aggravate the pain. So if a patient comes to us holding the face in pain and yet they can open and close reasonable, good distances and not increase the pain, we need to be thinking maybe that's not a temporal medieval disorder. Because if it were musculoskeletal pain, these functions would increase the pain. So we can learn by palpating muscles and look at range of movements and doing a superficial clinical exam on all patients to see how joints are functioning and whether there's pain associated with the jaw function. So you would recommend to every general dentist to do a minimum exploration of the masticatory system to evaluate if they have any temporomandibular signs or symptoms? Sure, I, I would. I think the patients deserve that because we're, there are many patients coming into the office and we're not asking the right questions and don't even realize that they are suffering with musculoskeletal pain. It doesn't take long to do a little cursory examination. You palpate the muscles, the temporalis, the, the masseter muscle, you feel the jaw joints, you, you feel for clicking and popping and ask questions about pain. Uh, I think every dentist needs to do that because once again, TM disorders is a problem that we dentists have to deal with. No other health professions do that. It's not, I, I say this out, TM disorders is a problem for dentists. It's not always a dental problem. Because sometimes in the past, what we've tried to do is help patients with TM disorders by thinking of the dental components, the teeth, the contacts, the bite, things like that. But sometimes these patients, maybe a lot of the times these patients come with musculoskeletal pain, and it's not an occlusion problem. And therefore, it's a problem for dentists, but it's not always a dental problem. We, though, have to stand up to the plate here and manage musculoskeletal pain because nobody else does. Don't go to a neurologist with a TM disorder. Don't go to ENT or to laryngologist. Don't go to a lot of the neurologists, a lot of the physicians. They don't even know what this is about. 
So we have an obligation, I think, to a patient population that we need to manage who have TM disorders. That is really interesting. And you have been mentioning pain and musculoskeletal pain, but what about a patient that comes to our clinic just with jaw popping or clicking and maybe they don't have any pain? Is that also considered TMD? Is it pathological? Do we need to treat a clicking joint? Uh, that's a great question because in the past, when we first started to identify and gain some knowledge on joint sounds, clicking, popping, locking, we got very concerned that this was a real pathology and that if it were untreated, it would lead a very, very destructive endpoint into arthritis, if you will. But as you look at epidemiological studies, you begin to appreciate that cooking is very common in the population and often not associated with pain. And in some of the studies, jump population, as many as a third of the population have some clicking. And that clicking can be is, is caused by some slight movements of the disc, so there's a little bit of displacement. But the evidence does not suggest that that always leads to problems. In fact, many of the patients who have clicking without pain, it's probably not going to change. I mean, it's probably not going to be a progressive disorder at all. So I think it's healthy for us to identify it. I, tell, I think it's healthy and important that we tell the patients what's going on. But if it's, it's painless but clicking, it's not something I think we should be treating. We don't have good answers for that. I think, on the other hand, if their pain is associated with a click, then we have some things that could offer that might, that, that might change the course of the disorder so it becomes less painful and more adaptive over time. Mm -hmm. So what causes TMD? What will trigger, what will be the etiological factors associated with TMD? Is there a genetic component? Is it something that runs in families? Um, well, that's a really good question that we've all struggled with because we, when we first started looking at this field, we were, the dentists were very, very centered on occlusion as the etiological factor. And, and the data is mixed on this. Uh, I think if you look at epidemiological studies, some studies suggest that there is a relationship between occlusal factors and TMD, and, and some studies say no relationship at all. The fact that we can't really come up with a strong correlation suggests that occlusion may have a role in some individuals, but there's got to be other things that are going on that help explain the incidence and the progression of TM disorders. So some, so occlusion may be, but then we have trauma. I mean, we've got pretty good evidence that a macro trauma blow to the face can instantly bring about changes in joint function, and so they have clicking, popping, locking, secondary to trauma. We, we have very good evidence that suggests emotional stress can be contributing to facial pain. It may not contribute so much to clicking, popping, but it certainly does associate, uh, it's associated with muscle pain of different types. And so we have emotional stress will bring about some of the musculoskeletal pains. Um, we see that other sources of deep pain can produce a problem. For instance, if you have cervical pain, the cervical pain, the presence of that pain initiates a response of the muscles of mastication to sort of tighten up a little bit. And it's a reflection of pain. So sources of deep pain can cause a, a muscle response, which we consider TM disorders. It's like a, even a toothache can limit how far we open. And because with, with the toothache, it's a source of deep pain. And therefore, what you're seeing is the muscles respond to that as a protective response. So you have limited mouth opening. So deep pain can be a source. We also have another one that we know about in dentistry, which is parafunctional activity. Sometimes we use our jaws, our muscle system, more than we need to to chew, swallow, and speak. It's used outside these areas, so we clench, so we grind the teeth. And we can do that at night, nocturnal bruxing, 
or quenching during the day. A lot of us will do this sometimes during the day as we as we concentrate on tasks and, and maybe a little bit of emotional stress and put our teeth together and clinch. And I think those two entities are quite different. There's the nighttime bruxing entity and then there's the daytime clinching entity. And I think they're, they're different enough that we can treat them differently on that sense. So, so I look at this as as there's five etiologies that we've got pretty good data that could be potential sources of TMD, and that being occlusion, trauma, emotional stress, deep pain input, and bruxism. But but it turns out that all of us have a little of all of that. I mean, we all have a little bite this off. We have a little bit of emotional stress. We have a little bit of trauma. We have a little deep pain, bruxing. So there's got to be another element, and I think the element is that, that nature gave us a wonderfully adaptive system. So the musculoskeletal system is very adaptive, and we all have different levels of adaptation. Some of us are very good adapters. Some of us are not very good adapters biologically. And so this adaptability has got things, some things to do with, with psychosocial issues. It's got to do with probably genetic issues, as you mentioned. It's probably got something to do with... with um, um, well, a lot of factors, we're not hormonal factors, a lot of factors that we have a difficult time putting our finger on. But it is interesting because one of the issues, if these factors, if these five factors exceed the adaptability of a patient, then we start to see a breakdown of the system, and we'll call that a temporomandibular disorder. Muscles start to hurt and things like that. Um, it, it, it's interesting to think that, in, that if we could change adaptability, maybe there'd be less people with some of these musculoskeletal pain conditions. We've always focused on these five etiologies, which is, which is proper, but the, the area that maybe we need to be focusing in the future is, can we change adaptability? Um, and one of the things you mentioned was some of the genetic factors. It's, it's very interesting to understand that we are identifying certain haplotypes. There's the comp gene that has to do with the neurotransmitters that are being produced from our DNA, what neurotransmitters produce. And some of those neurotransmitters are involved in pain and pain control and, and such. And it turns out that there seems to be three haplotypes in this comp gene, a pain-sensitive group, a neutral group, and a pain-insensitive group. And so I think what we're starting to understand is that patients are more, are more pain-prone, and therefore their adaptability is less. And so smaller things bring about more, more negative muscle, TM disorder, pain, and things like that. So I think there's a whole field of genetics out there, but I don't think we're going to be able to change genetics. It's only one factor in many of these factors. So I guess it's complicated. And I think the message we've learned as dentists is that when you have a complicated issue called pain in the musculoskeletal system, we shouldn't jump to the fact that we understand exactly why it's going on. And therefore, we need to treat patients very reversibly first and see if we can quiet things down before we start taking the structures that we know so well, the teeth, and make changes there. Because sometimes that doesn't work for patients, and it's very frustrating to assume that occlusion is the issue. And we spend several years or lots of money changing bites and don't get the results we want because that was never part of the pain problem. Mm-hmm. So that's a very complex uh, situation, a very complex condition, sounds like. So... As dentists, uh, we are really well trained in changing bites and changing occlusion. And you had mentioned how occlusion can be a part of these etiological factors and how we have started maybe uh, treating the, the occlusal factors. So what would you recommend to a dentist which works every day with the occlusion? 
when they should be considering in making occlusal changes or what would you recommend them to do before doing any occlusal treatment? Well, I think the first thing, of course, is let's say you're a prosthodontist and you're going to be doing a lot of crowns. I think the first thing we ought to do is make sure that we don't have an underlying TM disorder clinic or TM disorder patient. So we palpate muscles, look at range of movement. So we uncover any of the musculoskeletal pain conditions well before we start changing people's occlusion. Because, because we need to understand what it is that might have brought about those, that pain. And it's not always occlusion. See, the thing that we've done in dentistry, we kind of have a, we have this thing, we see the patient in pain, and the first thing we dentists do, we look at the bite, and we realize the bite's not right, because not many bites are perfect. <laughs> There's always something you can pick up. And we start to assume that non-working contact, that slide, that crossbite, that class two, all that is the reason for the pain. And that's a very strong leap of faith, because that's not necessarily related at all. So if I were a prosthodontist or an orthodontist, as an example, who's going to change on occlusion, first thing you want to do, I think, is get a baseline. Is this patient suffering with any musculoskeletal condition? And most patients aren't, but a quick palpation and check that. If, in fact, it, there is a, well, let's say there's no evidence of TM disorder, then I think you proceed to make those dental changes in a rational way with some evidence that would produce orthopedic stability in the masculatory system. So you're looking where joints are loading, and I personally think joints should be loaded in a superanterior position, which is musculoskeletally stable, and then achieving good occlusal contact at the other end of the bone, which is the occlusion. And so you minimize any risk factors for TMD or for occlusion producing any TMD by doing that. Now, the question becomes what, well, what about if you had TM disorders, you go to the orthodontist, and the orthodontist, should they do orthodontic treatment for TM disorders? Well, I think you got to, first of all, understand, is the TM disorder that you've uncovered got anything to do with the malocclusion? We're too often dentists jumping into the fact that if you got if you got a TM disorder, it's because the bite's off. Well, we ought, to, we ought to test that theory out a little bit. There's some simple things that we can do that are relatively reversible to quiet things down by just relaxing muscles, keeping the teeth apart, soft diets. Those things can make people get well pretty quick if it's a if it's a pretty acute condition. Sometimes we use a lot of occlusal appliances. Occlusal appliances, the number one the number one therapy that most dental offices pull out when it's time for the TMD patient comes in. Let's make an appliance. I personally think that's overkill. There's a lot of patients that don't need appliances. But that's at least reversible. So if we try that and it doesn't work, we haven't changed anything. So if, if, if the dentist says, I think this patient will benefit from prosthodontics or orthodontics, put a piece of plastic in there and develop orthopedic stability in acrylic and see what the results are. And if the patient goes, wow, this is really helpful, that tells you something. But if they say, this didn't help at all, well, it probably tells you the orthodontics and prosthodontics isn't going to be the answer to this particular pain problem. It's something else. It may not even be musculoskeletal. It may be out into orofacial pain, neuropathic pains, uh, uh, headache pains, tension type, and all these other conditions that we that we don't exact we don't address well as dentists. I guess I would say that. That. So I think you need some evidence before we start changing people's occlusion on a permanent base that, that, that the musculoskeletal pain, the TM disorder, is correlated to that. Sometimes appliances can help you, but appliances can fool us too because you can put an appliance between someone's teeth and they can respond and have less TM disorder symptoms, but 
But then what we classically have done is we assumed that the bite was the problem because I put a really good bite on this plastic and now the patient responded. Therefore, that bite needs to be placed in the teeth so I can do that either prosthetically or I can do that with orthodontics. And that's a big leap of faith also because that's making an assumption that the only thing appliances do is change people's occlusion. And that's not true. There's about seven different reasons that could explain why the patient got better with muscle pain or musculoskeletal pain when you put an appliance between the mouth or between the teeth. So, so you've got, it changed, the, it, it, it changed the occlusion, it changed the joint position possibly, that's a variable. It changed vertical dimension, that's a variable. It gave the patient a cognitive awareness that in fact they're clenching their teeth, that's another variable. It might be just some natural course of the disorder. In other words, people get well, and you put the appliance in there like that. It might have something to do with slowing down bruxism because the change in sensory input seems to produce not, reduce nocturnal bruxism. So there's, there's all these things that happen when you put plastic in someone's teeth, and we've made the assumption it's a simple cause and effect with occlusion, and it's not. So I guess what I'm saying is before we start making changes in people's occlusion for TM disorders, we, not, we, we want to make sure that that is a strong link so you have a strong, reasonable success. Now, if you're a prosthodontist and you need to change them for functional reasons or orthodontics for functional or aesthetics, then you want to make sure that the patient doesn't have TMD, and then you move on and do those, just developing the soundest masculatory system you can, orthopedic stability, understanding where the joints are loading and understand where the teeth are loading. Hmm. That's, that's very, very interesting. Um, Moving a little bit forward, uh, you also mentioned when we were talking about the etiological factors that grinding and clenching of the teeth can be related to TMD. So will a patient that broxes their teeth at night will develop TMD? Will that be a patient that we need to be treating for TMD? Well, that, there's another assumption that we've made in dentistry for many years. We, we kind of assumed that, you know, the classic thing that happens in a dental office that I see is a patient walks in and they say, Doctor, I have muscle pain. My face hurts. And the first thing we do is we part the lips a little bit and see tooth wear. And we go, oh, well, you're grinding your teeth. You know, there's your tooth wear. You're so we make this direct association that tooth wear and muscle pain are associated because the tooth wear is occurred at nighttime when someone's sleeping. Okay, well, you know, the sleep studies that we look at like that, you see that all people put their teeth together at night when they sleep. Some do it more than others, and some do it with clenching, and some do it with grinding. And, and the issue is, in the, in the sleep studies that we're now looking at, a lot of Jill Levine's work out of Montreal has helped us start to try to correlate, is pain associated with clenching and grinding? Is tooth wear associated with clenching and grinding? Well, you know, if somebody said, when you're grinding your teeth, you're going to have more pain, well, then we'd expect that people who grind the teeth more have more pain, which is not necessarily true in a sleep lab anyway which only looks at, of course, a couple days of activity, not over the lifetime. The amount of tooth wear that you see, severe tooth wear versus not so severe, you think that those are people who grind more in a sleep lab than the ones that have less tooth wear. Not necessarily true at all. It's, it's, it's the reason for the extreme wear on some people is because it's going on for such a long period of time in a sleep lab can't do that. A sleep lab only looks at a day or two. So that's some limited data there. Um, we've also learned this, it's kind of interesting, in, in Raphael's study with, uh, and, and also um, um, Jill Levine's work, they took a group of people who were patients who had TMD and said they were grinding their teeth, put them in a sleep lab, 
And what they learned was something kind of interesting. They learned that the people who were grinding their teeth more had less pain than the people who were grinding less who had more pain. And when you first think about that, that's not even intuitive. That's, that's, that's something wrong with the data here. But actually, as you start thinking about how muscles function, that is absolutely true. Because the more you use muscles, the more they accommodate to the activity and the less pain we have. It's like lifting weights. You lift weights, if you haven't lifted for a while, a day or two later, you've got delayed onset local muscle soreness. You've got pain in those muscles. If you lift every day or every other day, you don't have, you just build up strength of the muscles. So what you see is interesting. If people who grind regularly probably have less pain because they've conditioned their muscles. They're like weightlifters. So these are these 35-year-old guys, these big old strong masseter muscles who have flattened their teeth down, but they have no pain. It's because they have accommodated the muscle pain. It's likely the people who don't brux often that actually have more pain, which is not intuitive to what, we've, what we think or what we believe to be true. So I think what we have to do is reconsider muscle pain, the ideological factors, and where bruxism may or may not come in. And uh, everybody does a little bit of this, but some of us have more pain less than others. So there's a lot of variability here that we still got to figure out. Mm-hmm. So we have seen how we have temporomandibular disorders with multi-etiological factors. How should we manage this temporomandibular disorder patients? Is it a multidisciplinary approach, something important in the management of temporomandibular disorders? Yeah, very good question there too. Because what we see is As we start to look at TM disorders, we start to understand that some of these musculoskeletal disorders are very acute. And and what I mean by that, oh, they're a week old, they're three weeks old, you know, a month or two, something like that. And these are patients who are typically very good responders to very, very conservative instructions, education. You know, don't don't squeeze your teeth together. Beware of clinching. Stop doing that. Get the chewing gum out. Softer foods. These things, early on, TM disorders is a very, very almost self-limiting kind of a thing if we can just educate the patient. So I think, and I think every dentist, every dentist should have some, some background and some information to give patients who have acute TM disorders symptoms. These are not complicated. I, I wish my practice was, was all these kinds of patients because they get well, even sometimes in spite of what you do, and they love you for it, and it's a practice builder. Well, I think every dentist needs to understand that. Here's where we get more complicated. As time goes by, and we see these patients who have now had this for a year or two years or three years, then life changes for the patient. And life changes in the central nervous system, which means other factors become a more influencing influencing factor, if you will. Here's why I think you need a team that can help the patient at another level. And so our clinic at the University of Kentucky we have a psychology support system. We've got two psychologists and two or three psychology residents. And they're there with us helping seeing patients at the same time because when these patients come in, our average patient in our clinics had four years of pain before they arrive. So they will be dealing with depression and anxiety and anger and frustration and hostility and all those things that excite the pain, the pain mechanisms. And so they're really useful to have individuals around who can sort of address these better. We also see that, that a lot of this will be musculoskeletal pain. It's not just face, but it's cervical area. And so we have a lot of cervical pain that's reflecting into the face. So we have a physical therapy training program where we have a PhD, working on a PhD in physical therapists. 
I think those are the core players in chronic TM disorder pain. A dentist who understands chronic pain, a psychologist who understands chronic orofacial pain, and then, and then a physical therapist who understands how cervical input can reflect itself to pain in the face. And these patients are far more difficult to manage quickly. These people don't get better quickly. That's why we see them there. And so some of these other issues may become important etiological factors that have to be addressed. And we dentists are not in a position to address some of these by ourselves. So, so I usually say to the dentist that I've got an opportunity to talk to it, that if that patient walks in with musculoskeletal pain, and it's been going on for a few days or a week or even a month, month and a half, and they wake up with a little pain, get an appliance in there, maybe at nighttime, talk to them a little bit about keeping the teeth apart, and many of these patients respond beautifully to that. But when that patient walks in and you ask the question, how long have you had the pain? And they say, three years. Three years. Have you had anything done? Oh, yeah, I've had these appliances, and I've had this and that and all this. This is a different patient. This patient may very well be best treated in a, in a multi-professional team um, in hopefully your area with a well-trained oral facial vein dentist, psychologist, and physical therapist. We don't always have those all around, but, but that's probably better off. It would be kind of naive to me for the dentist to think, oh, you've had pain for three years? Well, let me make this new appliance. You haven't had this one. This is my appliance. It'll work a lot better, and it'll probably fail the same way because all the ideologies are not really being addressed here. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned appliances as part of the treatments that we can offer our TMD patients. And uh, I'm sure that our, our dentists in the audience are going to be very curious to know what type of appliances do you use in your patients that have TMD? Really, we rely mostly on what we call a stabilization appliance. Stabilization appliance will be a full arch appliance. We usually do the maxillary arch, all the teeth contacting in it, contacting in a stable joint position, musculoskeletal stable, with anterior kind of guidance, which you know people call the Michigan splint, muscle relaxation splint. That's probably our most traditional one. It doesn't work for every patient with TMD, but it, there are patients with local myalgia and and uh, cent- what we call central median myalgia, it might help. Uh, so that's the one. A- a- the second point that we will sometimes reach for, and we do this with, at a minimum thing just for a particular diagnosis, and that would be disc displacement, excuse me, painful disc displacements with reduction. These are individuals that have joint pain. If you bring the jaw forward a little bit and have open and close, the click will sometimes be eliminated and the pain is eliminated. And the reason why they have pain is because the the condyle is on the retrodiscal tissues because the disc has been slightly displaced. These individuals, we will will sometimes use what we mentioned as an anterior positioning appliance to jaw a little more forward, which they can leave the office saying, wow, it doesn't click anymore, it feels comfortable. But the problem we faced in the past is some of us in our profession said, okay, if it doesn't hurt to bring the jaw forward, that's where it should be the rest of the patient's life. And so we're going to do some dentistry to change the position in a more forward position. I don't agree with that at all. Um, what I think we need to do with appliances like this, they only use them at nighttime. During the day, they have their teeth still meeting together well, and they want to load a little bit on the joint controllably because that's what produces the fibrous connective tissue that begins to develop in the retrodiscal tissues. Because if you follow individuals in the natural course of this disorder, nature knows what to do here. Nature develops a dense fibrous connective tissue 
in the in the retrodiscal area is replaced with dense fibrous connective tissue, which means over a period of time the disc can be displaced and the pain goes away because the tissues have adapted. Just similar to like a callus. I tell my patients, I said, you know, if you rub your hands together too hard too quick, you blister. If you rub every day little, you callus. Calluses are nature's way to deal with trauma. The same thing's true with our joint. If the disc is moved out of place quickly and there's pain, if you bring the condyle away from that and let those tissues adapt, that condyle can go back to the original musculoskeletal stable position and the patient's adapted. No more pain. It may still click. It will likely click because the disc has been displaced. Uh, but the pain goes away. This is how nature has been treating this joint way longer than dentists have been treating this joint. We need to respect the natural course of this disorder. And therefore, if we have a click with no pain, we're not going to treat that. If we have a click with a pain, then we may treat this temporarily with a therapeutic appliance for a little while and then get that out of there after the tissues have adapted. Both the appliances that, that we would recommend, though, have full arch contact. Because if you leave a patient with an appliance that's only partial arch, then, then it gives the opportunity of the rest of the teeth to change in their position, erupt. Now, if they erupt, you take the appliance out, now we've altered the occlusion. My goal is not to alter, alter, alter occlusion in a TM disorder patient. It, I may want to change the function of that, but I'm going to, so every, both these are going to have contacts on all of the, all the teeth so that we have a stable arch relationship and when the appliance is out, they're back to their occlusion. Because, you know, and we're not, we're not going to change that occlusion in most of the patients. It, it's, not, it's, not, it's not always, let's say differently, on occasion people have true orthopedic instability where, where their joints are functioning well, their teeth don't contact well, and that's an issue. And those are people who may need some dental treatments. But in the majority of the patients we see, that's not the case. Sometimes we just got to teach muscles to be a little more quiet and let tissues in the joint heal up some. Mm -hmm. So, in regards to the treatment options, I have another question for you, Dr. Rockerson. What about uh, surgical management of temporomandibular disorders? When would you refer, if you refer at all, for management through surgery? Okay, well, right off the reel, I'd say this. We don't see any indications, I don't see any indications, that muscle pain is managed with a surgical approach. And that's the vast majority of patients we see, more muscle pain than joint pain. So first of all, that would have to be a patient who has an actual intracapsular temporomandibular joint pain. And I would, we would manage that first by occlusal appliances, reduce the loading, and see if we can get the adaptive process to, to occur. And, and my experience is most often we can do that. Now, if that's failing, then you start thinking what else could be possible to do this. Well, when we first got into this field, in the United States anyway, Back in the 90s, we had a group of oral surgeons who would very, very quickly enter the joint, try to put the disc back in place, do a plication procedure or a disectomy, and, and more aggressively treat the joint. Over a decade or so, we started looking at those patients and realized that was not necessarily the best treatment for most of the patients. And so we sort of backed out of the surgical approach in most of the patients and being more conservative, which I think is good for patients. However, if you're really reducing the loading of a joint, and we still have joint pain, where do we start bringing in a more aggressive, aggressive treatment? Well, what we've learned is that in some individuals, if they're not adapting well, an arthrocentesis might be useful. So two needles placed in the joint, the joint's lavaged. You see that there's a reduction of the inflammatory mediators, a reduction of, of, of uh, it, well, 
pain mediators and infl inflammation mediators. And so in a certain group of those patients, you can start to see they start to adapt. It's like they got over the healing hump by just by flushing the joint out. That's a pretty conservative thing. And, and, the, and the data on arthrocentesis says it helps some individuals. It doesn't help everyone. But, but that would be something to consider. If, in fact, that really failed and we still have joint pain, then, you know, then that's when you start considering how aggressive, is, is there indications for more aggressive surgery? I think that's relatively rare. It's rare in the population of patients that we see, but maybe not uncalled for in some patients. Um, if you have patients who have had joints that, that are ankylosed, or if there's joints where there is no movement, I think surgical procedures may be indicated to free up certain structures like that. So so there's it's not like it's not indicated, but I think there was a time where we jumped to that a little too quickly for our patients. And I think we're being more conservative, and I think that's healthy for patients. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, we also hear a lot about Botox. Has Botox any uh, place in the management of patients of temporomandibular disorders? Uh, actually, I, I, I have been treating patients with Botox for, for 15, 20 years almost because I do think there's some indications for it. And the biggest indication is oral mandibular dystonia. So I've got a group of patients who they'll just be sitting there, their jaw will fly open with an uncontrolled muscle spasm and they can't close. Or their jaw will go to one side with a unilateral contraction of the inferior lateral pterygoid muscle. Or the elevator muscles close, the teeth come together, they can't open. And, and these dystonias are central driven, probably related to basal cell ganglion, probably the, the cerebellum, the neurotransmitters, the dopamine. Things like this are involved. So it's central induced. You can't control it. With medicines, you can't control it very well. So the treatment of choice for these patients, I believe, is Botox in the correct muscles. And Botox will give these patients up to three months of relief which is God sent to them because they, they can't stop their jaw from moving. So I really believe that's an indication for Botox. Now, we're starting to see where Botox is. is it, how about muscle spasm? There are some individuals who have spastic activity. Botox would help those patients. The problem you face that is, is the FDA has not approved spastic activities for, for some of this. Therefore, insurance companies don't have to pay. It gets to be very expensive. Now, there's, there's an interesting twist of Botox that, that we're starting to see now. We have, we've always known that it stops the release of acetylcholine at the motor end plate, which means it keeps muscles from contracting, so it weakens the muscle. Uh, and that's why it works for wrinkles and things like that. But we're also starting to see now that we're understanding that Botox has an effect on the sensory neurons, which we didn't believe to be true early on. So when you inject Botox into a peripheral structure of muscle tissue, skin tissue, Actually, it's broken down, and the afferent neuron, the sensory neuron, carries it retro or, or, or retrograde into the central nervous system. And we're starting to realize that it has some effect on certain pain conditions. How about migraine? You know, it's been proved for migraine because what it is with the protocol, in, in, you take 155 units and inject it in 31 sites, and it reduces migraine. How does it reduce migraine? i got to believe it's being broken down, taken centrally, stopping the triggering mechanisms. We're starting to see neuropathic pain patients that seem to have this help. There's some data that would suggest in trigemoralgia, Botox to the trigger zone can make a difference. We've, at our university, we're starting a project right now where we're looking at persistent dental alveolar pain, which is a neuro, continuous neuropathic pain felt in the, in the dental structures. We've just got a, published, a paper published where we've injected Botox into the gingival tissue Four out of seven of those patients had significant reduction of pain. 
we're starting to a project with a with a larger not a pilot study any longer, but a larger study. We're going to see if we do a controlled clinical trial to see what the ramifications of Botox for neuropathic pain. But this is new. And the interesting thing about Botox, I think it's easily abused. People start using it for things they shouldn't use it for. We've got to get more evidence-based. But I do think there's a window of hope here with certain pain conditions. Mm-hmm. That sounds really promising. So thank you so much for, for sharing all this knowledge with us. In this last few minutes that we have left, uh, would you like to add anything else about the role that dentists can play in the field of orofacial pain? And how do you see or how do you envision the future of this field? Yeah, great. I, I think, as I said before, TM disorders is a problem for dentists, but it's not always a dental problem. I think we need to educate every dentist about what TMD is about and how some of the simple reversible things can be can, can be applied that make big differences. We don't we're not doing that well enough right now. I'd like to think every dental school has courses in TM disorders, and that's not true. Even though it's the second most common pain condition. Now the other thing that is happening, which I think is very useful, I get I get email several times a week. I have somebody that's a patient, dear, dear Doctor Rokson, I have TMJ. I live in Timbuktu someplace. Where can I go? And I don't have good answers for them. Because if I say, well, go to your phone book, look up TMJ, and go to one of those dentists, basically I have absolutely no idea how they'll be treated. Some will be treated very properly. Some will be treated or mistreated. Then they'll get treatment they don't need. Now, we're solving that when the Commission on Dental Accreditation a number of years ago said, okay, we do need to set up programs who teach dentists about evidence-based pain control. And so now... We at the University of Kentucky, we have one of the first ones and we're, we've established here. We have, I believe, 10 to 11 programs in the United States. And what these are going to be two-year graduate training programs which educate dentists about all of oral facial pain, not just TMD. And I, I'd like to think the future is going to have these individuals out into major cities where you can refer your more complicated patients to. Because we need that. Not only does the profession need it, but we get patients that need that. And we have lots of patients who could be helped if we got them in the right offices at the right time. And unfortunately, that's not available yet. But we're starting that way. I think that's a good thing. So the field is changing that way. And I, and I think that hopefully will be good for everyone involved in the field. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a great pleasure to share this time with you, Professor Arkeson. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your time. I know that you have a very busy schedule. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's been nice to chat with you. And I hope these podcasts can be really useful for a lot of patients. Thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Thank Mm -hmm. you so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you had enjoyed this podcast about the role of dentistry in the field of temporomandibular disorders and orofacial pain. If you would like to learn more about this subject or any other topics, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.aaop.org. It was my pleasure to share this time with you. Thank you for listening.